From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Traditionally, there have been three basic treatment options for cancer, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, or some combination of those three. But there is fast becoming a fourth option for some types of cancer, immunotherapy, and that's where the patient's own immune system is activated to actually kill the cancer cell. It is trying to convince the immune system that the tumor is foreign and needs to be attacked. If we can get these viruses to infect these cancer cells, the T cells come and start to attack the virus and then start to attack the tumor. Also on the program, we'll discuss melanoma, the deadliest form of skin cancer. And we'll learn about the wide range of birth control options now available for women. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Traditionally, treatment for cancer has had three main options. Surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, or some combination of those three. But there is fast becoming a option four, a fourth option, immunotherapy, a treatment where the patient's own immune system is actually activated to kill the cancer cells. Exciting, to say the least. Ongoing research at Mayo Clinic is not only improving immunotherapy treatments, but helping to predict which patients will respond to this new form of treatment. Here to talk about advances in immunotherapy are Dr. Richard Vial and Dr. Roxana Dronka. Dr. Vial is a researcher in the Department of Molecular Medicine at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Dronka is an oncologist with the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. Welcome to the program, both of you. Good to have you. Thank you. Good, good to be here. Thank you. All right, Dr. Dronka, tell us about immunotherapy. I'm sure that you and your colleagues are pretty excited about this new modality. We are indeed. And um, like you said, it's, I think, a form of therapy for cancer that is becoming very fast, uh, main, uh, one of the main options for treatment of patients with different malignancies. I would say that for about a century, actually, researchers and doctors have hoped that you can harness the immune system to kill the cancer. And many, many different studies and research has been done in this, in this area, but it, we didn't quite get there. Up until, I would say, um, five to ten years ago when these new um, checkpoint inhibitors, they are called, so these new antibodies that actually activate the lymphocytes or a main part of the immune system that's designed to fight the cancer have been proven to be quite specific in um, harnessing the immune system and turning the immune system against the cancer in a very effective and durable way. Why does... Why doesn't the immune system stop the cancer in the first place? It is very interesting, and I think that was a question that we all asked ourselves because the immune system is designed to fight with everything that is foreign or everything that is not quite self in the body, and cancer cells are not self. However, cancer cells are very um, smart in a way. Uh, They um, have the ability to trick the immune system into thinking that these are normal self cells and the immune system then kind of overlooks and does not attack the the cell that is um, abnormal. And then the cancer can grow under the watch of the immune system. My patients ask me all the time, is my is something wrong with my immune system? No, you can fight pneumonia, you can fight a flu, you can fight any infection just the way anyone else does. It's just that the cancer cell has the ability to put on 
usually by secreting substances or by putting on some signals towards the immune system that fools the immune system um, into thinking that these are normal cells. It's almost like the traitors in an army, you know, mm-hmm. they disguise so well that you can't even tell. Um, so that is how the cancer starts growing under the watch of the immune system. Yeah, it's sort of uh, disappointing, isn't it, that your immune system can be tricked by these cancer <laughs> cells? It's unfortunate, too. So what you're trying to do then is jack up the immune system so it recognizes these as foreign invaders and kills them. Yes, exactly. And I think the research in the last uh, few years um, has uh, uh, gone in the direction of particular um, molecules or proteins on the surface of the cancer cells that the cancer cells basically upregulate or, you know, make more of that at the moment this, this, the immune system approaches or the moment the cells come into contact with the immune, with the immune cells, um, basically uh, the immune cell becomes inactive, either dies or um, say as, stays at the site without doing anything. So by blocking this particular proteins on the surface of the cancer cell or on the surface of the immune cells, the, Im- the lymphocytes or the immune cells can become activated again and recognize the enemy better. Yeah, so you're teaching the lymphocytes to recognize the cancer for what it is and kill it. Yes, and the uh, these new drugs are pretty specific. They don't activate the entire immune system like the old drugs um, would, like the interleukin-2 or interferon that had so many side effects because it was a immune storm, basically, when you gave them. These new drugs are pretty specific. They activate and they teach the particular subset of immune cells that are designed to fight the cancer. So the effect is much better than a non-specific activator, and also the adverse or the um, side effects are much lower because these drugs are much more specific. Oh boy, this yeah. is way... It's heavy, I am trying. I'm struggling upstream to try to go along with this one, but uh, I, I remember once hearing that lots of different people can get cancer cells in their body, and some people's immune system can stop it, and other people's immune systems cannot. Is that correct? It is correct, I would say, in a sense. For instance, patients that uh, have known immune suppressive illnesses or take immune suppressive medications, patients after transplant that need to be on a heavy immune suppressive regimen, we do know that they have a much higher risk of getting different type of cancer. So their immune system is even, I think, more weak or weakened by by this and not able to fight or to stop cancers at the very beginning. Um, Some others, I think the research suggests that, you know, we get cancer cells or pro or pre-cancer cells in our body throughout our life and you know sometimes these cells are um, killed by the immune system as to exactly what extent and you know how is this process going in different individuals I think this is much under study and becomes more of the area that now is I think so emphasized of personalized medicine to treat each patient individually and each cancer individually. So this isn't that's kind of what I was getting at this isn't like individualized medicine where each immunotherapy therapy treatment is specifically designed for each patient or is it is that what we're talking about I think it is, uh, in a way, um, it is a form of uh, personalized medicine, but it's not necessarily um, targeted, I mean, different for each patient. Okay. Uh, we are learning that for some cancers and some patients, these treatments work extremely well, 
and some patients do not respond at all. And at this time, we are unable to tell at the start of the treatment who is going to respond to these therapies and who is going to um, progress or who needs other forms of treatment. So um, I think the um, research is very heavy, and especially here at Mayo Clinic, we are working very hard into developing biomarkers or markers in the blood that would allow us to tell ahead of time who is going to respond to this treatment and during the treatment who is becoming resistant to this treatment in such a way that we don't expose unnecessarily patients to expensive drugs, to side effects, but we in a way personalize the treatment for each patient. Some patients may respond better to chemotherapy. Some patients may just need surgery and do very well once you resect a small part of the cancer, even in stage four or metastatic cancer. Some patients may respond very well to immunotherapy for years and years. I have patients who are in remission with stage four cancer now for five or six years that I enrolled in the clinical trials that have started in 2010 or 2009. So um, for some patients, it is truly a miracle, yes. Yeah, so uh, everyone understands with regard to the uh, immune system, you are suppressing the immune system in patients who have had an organ transplant so they don't reject the transplant. Exactly. And that's why these patients, uh, because their immune system is a bit weakened, are a little more likely to get a cancer. So, Dr. Vial, is this what you're working on in your lab, these molecules to attack cancer cells? Yes, absolutely, we are. Uh, our particular interest is in uh, pediatric brain tumors, and because of the location of those tumors, there are a whole host of specific um, issues involved, but we're doing exactly the same thing. We're trying to stimulate the immune system to see the, the cancer as foreign, uh, and then to react against it. And we're doing that with these so-called checkpoint inhibitors, but in combination with something which are call, something called oncolytic viruses. So these are viruses which we, uh, we inject into the tumor or we deliver to the tumor systemically. Uh, and as Dr. Dronka said, the real issue is trying to convince the immune system that the, the, the tumor is foreign and needs to be attacked. If we can get these viruses to infect these cancer cells, the tumor cells in the brain, then the immune system suddenly is really revved up because the immune system is, has evolved to see viral infections. If the, if the immune system now sees the, the viruses in the tumor, the, uh, the T cells come and start to attack the virus and then start to attack the tumor. Uh, and then we can add on top of that these checkpoint inhibitors which take off the breaks of the T cells. Uh, the T cells start to go really, uh, become very active against the tumor. Uh, and that's sort of what we're hoping to achieve, uh, as I say, in pediatric brain tumors. And Dr. Vile, how many immunotherapies have already been approved and are being used? Um, I know you're working on one that has yet to be approved, correct? Right, yeah. Uh, how so, many have been approved? So checkpoint inhibitors now have been approved for specific types of cancer, not the brain tumors that we're working on. Um, and I think over the next five years, the, the, real, the, the real success will come in combinations, both of combination checkpoint inhibitors together, but also uh, checkpoint inhibitors with things like viruses. One uh, oncolytic virus has been approved for the treatment of melanoma, uh, a herpes virus expressing GMCSF, and again, GMCSF is a is an immune activator. So all of these pathways are leading to approvals, leading to new drugs, and uh, you know, for the first time in this field, 
I think we can safely say patients are being cured by immunotherapy. Pretty exciting. Immunotherapy and the treatment of cancer. We're talking with Mayo Clinic researchers Dr. Richard Vile and Dr. Roxana Dronka. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we got Myth or Matter of Fact. Yeah, Myth or Matter of Fact. In a clinical trial, cancer patients may be giving a therapy that is known to be ineffective. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with immunotherapy experts and researchers, Dr. Roxana Dronka and Dr. Richard Vial of the Mayo Clinic. We're talking about immunotherapy, an exciting field and exciting new modality in the treatment of cancer. And so uh, here's our myth or matter of fact. In a clinical trial, Dr. Dronka, cancer patients may be given a therapy known to be ineffective. Is that a myth or is that a fact? I would say uh, both, but more a, more a myth than a fact. In general, most clinical trials, especially for patients with um, advanced cancer, involve um, drugs um, or a, um, a combination of drugs that are um, tested against each other into different arms or more um, arms of the clinical trial in such a way that patients do get treatment uh, regardless. Either the, we compare a new treatment against a known standard of care or we, uh, if there is no standard of care, we compare mm-hmm. two different treatments or sometimes we have what is called a single arm clinical trial that means everyone gets the treatment there are new designs of clinical trials nowadays because of exactly this concern that everyone gets the treatment that involves uh, patients getting a drug for a, for a period of time and if that doesn't work then they switch to the new drug so we call a crossover clinical trial in such a way that everyone gets the opportunity to be um, exposed to a drug or to a promise drug um, that we think may be effective. Because unfortunately, patients that would be part of this clinical trial would most likely be patients who the other therapies, radiation, chemotherapy, are not working for them, unfortunately. Exactly. So most of the clinical trials and other clinical trials that led to approval of these uh, immunotherapies were actually single-arm clinical trials uh, where um, most, most, I mean, where all patients got um, therapy, got the same uh, drug. In situations where patients may um, get placebo or a drug mm-hmm. that is ineffective is actually um, those uh, particular situations where there is no standard of care. We would not do or give any drug anyway. For instance, in someone with an early cancer that is cured completely after surgery where we do not have any known approved treatment that is uh, known to decrease the risk of recurrence, so not, we would not give the patients anyway. Sometimes if we want to test if there is a best or new drug that can decrease the recurrence risk, we may test it against placebo or, you know, doing nothing versus versus giving this drug. But um, because the standard of care is not doing anything anyway, um, those clinical trials would not harm or would not cause any, um, any harm to the patient. Tell us about the cancers that you are using immunotherapy for and how you administer the immunotherapy. So it is exciting that the cancers for which we are using immunotherapy for, is that the number of cancers is actually increasing, I would say, by the month. Um, initially, it were, they were studied and approved in melanoma. Melanoma is a malignancy that is known to be very immunogenic or be very much in uh, relationship with the immune system. Mm-hmm. And immunotherapy has been used for melanoma since the 70s when interleukin-2 was approved. Um, similarly, renal cell cancer is a malignancy 
malignancy kidney that cancer. kidney cancer is a malignancy for which immunotherapy has been used. Um, earlier forms of immunotherapy have been used for many decades. So now um, these new checkpoint inhibitors are approved actually for kidney cancer as well. I think, however, where the exciting uh, part of immunotherapy comes is that we are now finding that it is effective in cancers that in the past were completely resistant to immunotherapy and no one thought that immunotherapy would even be effective, such as lung cancer, um, as well as bladder cancer, for which a new checkpoint inhibitor was just approved, uh, I think, last month. How about pancreas? Have have we made any progress there? I would say that... um, Yes, the research in pancreas with immune checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapy is actually very active. Um, our researcher at, researchers at Mayo do have some clinical trials that they are proposing, and they want to study immunotherapy in combination with other forms of treatment or immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors by themselves. But um, there is a lot of hope that we could help patients with pancreatic cancer, which we know is a very aggressive form of cancer. Dr. Vile, the last time that you were here with us, you were talking about your the brain tumor research that you're working on, and tell us where you're at in your research with the brain tumor. So we uh, have actually started a, a phase one clinical trial now. Uh, we've treated three patients with different types of pediatric brain tumors, and the trial is essentially we give the patients uh, a cytokine called GMCSF, which activates the immune system and primes it, and then we deliver a a virus called Riovirus into the patients. As I say, it's a phase one clinical trial, so the, the, the goal of that trial is to make sure that this is safe. And we've seen some encouraging effects in the children that we've treated including a a sort of an inflammatory response in the brain. So inflammation in the brain is of itself not a good thing. You you don't want to actively cause too much inflammation. But we're encouraged in this particular trial because the whole point is that this is an immunotherapy approach. And if you're having inflammation in the brain, then it implies that the immune system has suddenly started to see things in the brain which previously it was not seeing. And in Two of the three children that we have treated with this experimental therapy so far, we've seen this inflammation. We have seen possible effects on the tumor, although it's impossible to say that that's our therapy. They, they had radiation therapy before, so all sorts of things could be happening. But uh, we plan to proceed with this trial, ramp up the doses, and we hope that we will be able to get a dose of our viral treatment, which is effective against the tumor, doesn't cause too much inflammation that is damaging to the children, and you know, hopefully in the, in the long term we'll develop a new therapy. So phase one means very early on, and you're just trying this drug to make sure that it's safe, and then you'll go on to a phase two, phase three, and hopefully someday be able to cure kids with brain cancer, huh? That would be uh, fantastic. Uh, Especially if it happens during your lifetime, huh? That would be even better. (laughs) Yeah, thanks to both of you. Immunotherapy experts, Dr. Roxana Dronka and Dr. Richard Vile. a pleasure having you on the program. Best of luck to both of you. Thank Thank you you very much. much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss prevention and treatment of melanoma, the deadliest of skin cancers. And later on the program, we'll learn about the wide range of birth control options now available to women. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. With your Mayo Clinic Radio Health Minute, I'm Vivian Williams. 
soybeans, soy milk, edamame, and tofu. Does eating soy increase the risk of breast cancer? No. In fact, eating soy is thought to be preventative of breast cancer, especially in young women. Mayo Clinic dietitian Catherine Zeratsky says soy contains isoflavones, which are plant estrogens. Unlike human estrogens, which in high levels can increase the risk of breast cancer, plant estrogens do not. Soy is part of a healthy diet, and so that women should not be fearful of, of having edamame or tofu or other soy products in their diet. The American Institute for Cancer Research recommends people consume one to two servings of soy a day. And this is considered safe and healthy. So go ahead, reach for some edamame or enjoy that cup of soy-rich soup. In moderation, soy is part of a balanced and nutritious diet. And in other news, the golf season is in full swing. And for many golfers, short putts, which seem like they'd be easy, especially for pros, can be a nightmare. Why? The yips. Mayo Clinic's Dr. Charles Adler studies the yips, long thought to be purely a performance anxiety problem. Dr. Adler is researching a neurological explanation as well. Now, the yips that happen during putting or chipping may be a physical movement disorder and not only the result of undue pressure to perform. In fact, in some cases, the affliction can be linked to writer's or musician's cramps. The most common symptom is an involuntary muscle jerk, but some people have tremors, twitches, spasms, or freezing. Because the yips may be related to overuse of specific muscles, a change of technique or equipment may help. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Skin cancer is by far the most common type of cancer, actually around the world. And in the United States, about 5 million people are diagnosed with skin cancer every year. I wrinkle up my nose when I hear you talk about (laughs) skin cancer. According to the American Cancer Society, the deadliest form of skin cancer, melanoma, accounts for less than 2% of all skin cancer cases, but the vast majority of skin cancer deaths. There's a reason it's been called the Black Death, Hmm. unfortunately. Well, if it isn't diagnosed early, melanoma can invade nearby tissues and the lymph system, and it can actually spread through the bloodstream to other parts of the body, including the lungs, the liver, the brain, something you really don't want to have happen. Here to discuss the importance of diagnosis and prevention of melanoma is Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Jerry Brewer. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Brewer. It's great to see you. Thank you, Tom and Tracy. It's a pleasure. Yep, nice to have you. So there's skin cancer and there's skin cancer, and there are three major types, right? Can you ex- uh, expound on that, explain that to us? Three major types, basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and melanoma, and uh, melanoma is uh, the least of those three as far as incidence goes, but it does a lot of damage when you when you get melanoma. Which one is the most common? Common is the most common is basal cell, and we see maybe anywhere from three to million of those every year. And what do they look like? Tell us about the symptoms. What uh, what ought to uh, lead someone to come to the doctor because they've got this thing on their skin? Basal cell carcinomas can be a little bit tricky because they can look just like a pimple and they can be just a little red spot that looks like an irritated hair follicle. And the other tricky thing is they grow so slowly that sometimes it's hard to know something's going on. So the the main thing to know is something that doesn't really go away. It seems to bleed easily when you rub it with a towel out of the shower. That might be a reason to get it checked out. Now, most of the basal cells do you see that you see, are they on the, the face, the ears, the neck, mm. uh, in sun-exposed areas? Mm-hmm. That's right. Basal cell tends to be in sun-exposed areas. The two most common spots are the nose and the ears. 
Um, you can get them anywhere, but by far we see them very commonly on the head and neck. So that's why you see all these people walking around the clinic with a Band-Aid on their <laughs> ear or their forehead or their, or their face. So most of those basal cells. Yeah, that's And, right. you know, we are from a generation, all of us here actually, kids younger than us, had sunscreen as part of their growing up, but none of us did. And so is this something that as the population is aging, you're seeing a rapid growth in that? Yeah, that's right. Of the seven most common forms of cancer, melanoma is the only one that tends to continue to rise. So we're seeing a lot of that. And you're right, Tracy, we really didn't have that when we were growing up. But we're finding that sunscreen really does a big, has a big difference. And just using an SPF of 15, which isn't much, but using it every day can reduce your chances of melanoma by 50%. So you remember what we used to use for sunscreen. You're probably not that old. We used baby oil. That oh, was our sunscreen. We didn't even use, we didn't even use that. We just, our summer routine was that you, the tradition is get the first burn and get it out of the way. And yeah. there was no sympathy from your parents whatsoever because you had to just have your first burn. And, and as a dermatologist, that was just, oh, yeah. that's just the worst. Yeah, you know, I grew up in that age, too, and I had my burns, too. But now uh, looking back and at the, knowing what I know now, even just five burns, and it seems like the younger that you are when you got them, that maybe has a higher risk as you get older. So even five burns as a young kid can increase your chances by two to three-fold for melanoma later. So we hit basal cells. So number two, squamous cell. Tell us about that one, and then we'll hit. Melanoma. Squamous cell carcinoma is also a uh, common one, a little bit more common than, than melanoma. It tends to be a little more likely in people who are immunosuppressed, so people who have trans organ transplants that tend to take medicines to um, help prevent their, rejection. Yeah. To prevent rejection, tend to have a higher chance of that. In fact, those folks can have squamous cell carcinoma over 250-fold more likely. Um, so we see it a lot in them, but we see it a lot in the sun-exposed areas similar to basal cell carcinoma, too, and it can happen just about anywhere to anybody. When somebody has a spot, like you were saying, on your nose or on your ears, do you have to test it to find out if it's one of these three, or when you look at it, can you tell that it's which one of those it is? Yeah, that's a great question. Usually you can tell, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes they can be tricky and they can look different. So um, most of the time we can tell, but we usually like to check. So either one of those two has the potential to spread. By definition, it's a cancer, but uh, both unlikely to do so. Squamous cell probably more, a little more likely than, than basal cell for sure. Um, but now let's talk about the third one, uh, the one that can really cause a problem and, and death if not caught early, and that's melanoma. Yeah, and, and just be, before we get into that segue, we're finding more that squamous cell carcinoma might be more deadly than we think. Basal cell, right? basal cell hardly ever spreads. I think the chances are less than 1%. But there are probably close to 10,000, 9,000, 10,000 people that die every year from squamous cell carcinoma, which is kind really? of striking from what we used to think about it. So it's one that you really need to pay attention to. Melanoma, we're seeing um, close to 10,000 deaths a year as well, and there's probably... Um, a good uh, million people living with melanoma in the United States right now. But the important thing to know about melanoma is if you catch it early, it's a chip shot. I mean, it, right. you, you get it excised and it's over. That's right. um, and, and so we tell us about, uh, we'll talk about prevention momentarily, but, but how to catch it early. Yeah, that is extremely uh, important. Um, melanoma caught early, the, the, the more deeper that melanoma is when it's caught, the higher chance it has of spreading. And, in fact, if you catch it early enough, there's over a 98% cure rate. But if it spreads to a nearby lymph node, that drops to closer to 60%. So catching it early is key. Um, 
some of the things that can really help catching it early is just really being in tune with your body. And I, and hopefully we're getting into an age where people are a little more likely to take a look at themselves every once in a while, knowing the risks of skin cancer are increasing as the years go by, um, seeing a little bit of a change here or there. And interestingly, maybe 70% of melanomas are brand new spots. So being aware of what's new and what's not new can really help. And seeing a dermatologist every once in a while never hurts either. But I can only see half. <laughs> I can only see half. <laughs> well, you've got to get another on, mirror. Yeah, <laughs> no, depending on how, uh, you know, how much you can twist. Uh, is this something that you should be going in to see a dermatologist or... Is this that you and your spouse or somebody in your house just says, take a look at, take a look at this? <laughs> You've got a better half, right? Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, yeah, as a dermatologist, I, I never uh, turn anybody down who would like to come in. It's always a good thing to have, to have a baseline look over, and then you can kind of have a risk assessment and kind of a baseline check. There are some ways you can get big mirrors and kind of look around and see hard-to-see areas, and then there are some campaigns out there of, like, got your back and things like that of having your significant other really helping you as you try to see places that are hard to Except see. Except for you're in the middle of the department store, Dr. Shives, so you're not supposed to stand in front of those mirrors. <laughs> so I, it terrifies me, of course, because I went to tanning beds. I was tanning in tanning beds and so i feel like i'm a ticking time bomb what what can i do what should i do just go see a dermatologist more often um the the thing the thing that uh, really helps is is number one just doing your self-skin examinations once once a month and that's been proven to really catch melanoma early if you just do that one simple habit because you're more likely to see a change or a new mole quicker and then it never hurts to get in tune with a dermatologist and they can point out spots that they're a little more aware of and are a little more concerned about to take a peek at. Really, Tracy, it's as easy as ABC, right? That's right, yeah. So A is, is stands for asymmetry, which means if you look at a mole and half of it looks different than the other half, that could be a concern. B is border. If it's not a regular circle, it kind of has a jaggedy edge, that could be a concern. C is color. You know, we like moles to have the same color throughout them. So if there's more than one color, that can be a concern. And then there, there's a D and an E they added recently. The D stands for bigger than a pencil eraser diameter. And E is added uh, standing for evolution, which is kind of a catch-all of anything else that's changing about it that you can't pinpoint to A, B, C, or D. All right, there you go. Any of those changes, make sure you see your dermatologist and catch it early. It's curable. Dermatologist Dr. Jerry Brewer, thanks for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the wide range of birth control options now available. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, if you're considering birth control, you may be surprised to find out that you have more options than ever. Of course, you can always get a prescription for oral contraceptives, and, and that's still a pretty common way to do it. But implantable devices, even a contraceptive injection, are other options for women. So how do you decide? When choosing a birth control method, there are many factors to consider, including your lifestyle, personal preferences, and your health status. Here to help us sort through all of these birth control options is Mayo Clinic Family Medicine Specialist, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cozine. Thank you for having me. Yes, great to see you again, Dr. Cozine. And uh, interesting topic. So uh, with all these options available, I'm sure you see a lot of women who are seeking 
seeking your advice, and how do you help them decide? I do this on a, almost a daily basis. Really? When I'm trying to help somebody decide about what method of birth control, it's exactly what Tracy was saying. I want to know a little bit about them personally, what's going to be the most convenient, the most effective, and what medicine we could use given all of their health concerns. And uh, most of the women that you see, I presume, are young women? It's most often young, healthy women that I'm starting contraception in, but this is an issue up until menopause. So I tell women, as long as you're having a period, you have, there's a possibility that you could get pregnant. And my goal is always to have somebody be pregnant when they want to be pregnant. <laughs> That's a yeah. great goal. <laughs> I have a question for you, and uh, Tracy has a daughter, and I had a daughter, and I never asked the question, but if my daughter came in to you and she was 16 and uh, was seeking birth control, would you give it to her? Absolutely. Without her parents' consent? Correct. So teenagers are in an interesting group in that they're treated as adults in the in the doctor's office. I always tell teenagers that. I say, look, I would be happy to have any difficult conversations you want me to have with your parents, but I also don't have to tell them anything unless it concerns your safety. So I say, again, I want you to be protected in multiple senses of the word, and let's um, have a conversation about it. If they want me to talk to their parents about it, I'm happy to be the quote-unquote bad guy <laughs> to have that conversation. And does that ha happen often? Yeah, how's that go? It goes great. <laughs> really? It goes great. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, somebody will come into the office, maybe mom or dad is with them, and I always try to talk to the teenager alone mm -hmm. and then have the parent come in, and I say, look, here are the things I want to talk about. Um, I'm going to talk about you, talk about this with you guys together, and then I'm going to kick mom or dad out, and we're going to talk alone. And I would say more often than not, they say, yeah, go ahead, bring my parent back in. Let's talk about it together. I'd like you to lead the conversation. And I say, oh, you know, Mrs. Jones, your daughter would really like to be on birth control. Here are the options that I've discussed that might be effective for her, and what do you think about that? Usually the mom is, or it's often the mom, is so relieved that I've had the conversation that, yeah, 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 let's just go ahead and do it. Hmm. And it goes well. And what's dad say? Dad, um, dad's also relieved. Quiet. I was going to say, I was going to ask you, what did you say? But we'll just continue along. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. I, I think it's fine. And it's interesting what you said is that you don't have to tell the parents anything unless it has to do with the child's safety. Correct. Yeah, interesting. So I presume that most of the of the women that you see and, and young girls are taking oral contraceptives. Um, Is that right? Answer that. Is that right? And and why would you prescribe something else? I would say that's still true, but increasingly we're using what's called the LARC method, which stands for long acting reversible contraception. Um, lots of times what I do is there's a fabulous app that was developed by Mayo Clinic gynecologists that is a birth control app and you can, it's free, go to the app store, download it, works for um, either Android or iPhones. You can grab that app, click on all of what the different options are, which would be a pill, injectable, long acting reversible contraception would be an implant or an IUD, which is an intrauterine device mm -hmm. and figure out what would work for you. Oftentimes, I do start with a birth control pill because it's pretty low risk. The reasons I wouldn't want somebody on what's called a combined oral contraceptive, which is estrogen and progesterone, would be if they were obese, over age 35 and obese, a smoker, or has a history of migraine with aura. But other than that, there are, you know, there are certainly more complicated situations where we get into other things. But for the average person, a combined oral contraceptive is a great option. It's cheap. It's easy to start. And um, there's some other benefits like improving acne. 
So you talked about a combined. Is there mm-hmm. a non-combined? I mean, are there? Yeah, there are. Here? There are non-combined. So some situations where you would want to use, for example, what's a progesterone-only pill would be breastfeeding. So that's another really important time of life when mm-hmm. somebody is postpartum to make sure again that they have a child when they're ready to have a child. And so we want to make sure that we're protecting them in that postpartum period and yet not affecting their milk supply. So. A contraceptive agent with estrogen can reduce the milk supply, which is why we would choose a progesterone-only agent. The bad side of a progesterone-only agent is that it's very finicky in terms of timing, so it needs to be taken within the same one-hour period every day. So that's not my first choice for a teenager. So thinking about what the other options are, we talked about pills. Um, the NuvaRing is a great option, and that is a vaginal ring that's inserted into the vagina, worn for three to four weeks. And again, you don't have to remember to take anything. It's low cost, low risk. What is the implantables for the forearm? What yeah, is that? so that is what's called, um, the brand name is Nexplanon. It's etonorgestrel, which is the same progesterone that is in okay. the Mirena IUD or the Skyla IUD. And it's an implantable rod that's about as big as a match, and you numb the area of the arm, and it gets inserted right in between the bicep muscle and in the arm, so you can kind of feel it. Um, you put it in underneath the skin, and it's good for three years. Well, what about when they do want to have a baby then? So the beauty of the progesterone, uh, the LARCs, the long-acting reversible contraceptive, is that uh, fertility can return almost immediately after they're removed. And I've actually had patients who have had their IUD out one month and then come in for a prenatal visit with me the next month. Oh, my goodness. Wow. But, um, with regard to birth control pills, and maybe this is not so uh, true as it used to be because I think the doses that you use are lower, but what about uh, blood clots? Is there an increased risk? And if a woman has had a blood clot, is she not a candidate for oral birth control? Yeah, you you are right. Um, I would be leery of using a, a combined oral contraceptive in somebody who has a history of blood clots, in which case I would try to do something like the Mirena IUD. Um, which is not completely without risk, but deserves a conversation with your physician to talk about what your best option is. But in the 21st century, the estrogen level in oral contraceptives is much lower than when birth control pills were first introduced in kind of the mid-20th century. In the 21st century, do you still have women who are using natural family planning? I do. Mm -hmm. I do. Um, So for those women, I say... Yeah, go for it. If you're going to keep track of everything. <laughs> but, but not too often. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um, so for somebody who really doesn't, is really uncomfortable with a hormonal right. agent, a copper IUD is a reasonable choice. So um, let me just say, you know, an IUD goes into the uterus. It's inserted in an office-based procedure. And the copper IUD is basically spermicidal and creates kind of an inflammatory reaction where an egg isn't implanted. And... It's a great option, non-hormonal. The only side effect is that sometimes women have heavier periods. Okay. What about emergency contraception? Still available, and can you get that over the counter? It is available and available over the counter. Right. So uh, tell us the name of the app again. It's a, it's a Mayo Clinic Mayo Clinic app. birth control app. It's fabulous. I recommend it to especially teenagers. All right. And they can go through all the potential uh, options, then come in and see you and together discuss what's best for them. Yeah, it works really well. Dr. Elizabeth Cozine, a family medicine specialist at the Mayo Clinic on birth control. Glad to have you with us. Thanks again. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. 
Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We will be answering your questions in upcoming programs. A special Mayo Clinic Radio hello to our Anchorage, Alaska listeners who hear us on KOAN AM. And to our listeners in WZUS FM in Decatur, Illinois. Mayo Clinic Radio is now heard on more than 90 stations nationwide and in Canada. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.